Okay, page 15. We're up to part two of the Mimer, which is short. It's not as, not as long as part one. Um, but just a recap of what we spoke about on Wednesday, because it was definitely a while back. We spoke about just the process of what it actually looks like of godliness turning into klipa, right? And we used the story that's brought in in Bereshit, in the beginning, beginning of the story of Genesis, which discusses the river that flew and that flowed, I don't know why I keep doing that, that flowed into the Garden of Eden, from Eden, from the highest levels of God, down into the Garden of Eden, into Malchus. And from there that it split up into four and that these are the beginning of the flow of godliness that gives life to the clippers. And that's how we go from one line, one river, one flow, and it breaks up and then gives life in a way that the thing receiving life, the clipper doesn't even appreciate where it's getting its life from and denies the source of its life, denies God. And so with this whole background, we're going to now start to take it all into the story of Egypt that we are discussing this week. So we actually finally have a mimer that does line up with the Parsha now because it's Parsha's Va'era. This is a mimer in Parsha's Va'era. In this week's Parsha, Hashem commands Moshe and Aaron to go to Parai and to tell him to let my people go and to show him a miracle with the snake and the stick to prove to him that Hashem is the almighty God and that he should listen to him. So now, we're going to take the idea of what we spoke about, about breaking the klipa, the process of breaking the klipa, the process of the creation of klipa, what it is, and we're going to apply it now to Mitzrayim. So let's go inside. Part two, page 15. The Atta. So now that we've had this whole introduction, Yuvan Inyan Hamaifsim, now we can understand the idea of all of the wonders, Sheher'a Hashem Yisparech LeMitzrayim, that Hashem showed to Egypt. As it's written in Pashat Ve'era, Ve'yadu Mitzrayim ki ani Hashem. The Mitzrayim will know that I am Hashem. But as we brought previously, Perush Ve'yadu humoshon shvira. Ve'yadu also means to break. They, the Mitzrayim will know that I am Hashem and they will be, Mitzrayim will be broken. Katuv, as it is written in Book of Judges, Ve'yoda bam et anshe sukot that they broke them, the people of Sukkot. So we see that the word for knowing, yada, ladat, is connected to the word breaking. In our context, this means that for Mitzrayim to know that Hashem is their creator and source of life, Hashem had to break their external dimension of ego that was preventing that knowledge from reaching them. And we've spoken at length about how that happens when you reveal the source of something, you break the facade that convinces you that it's something other than what it really is. Va'inyan, so the idea is, as we, as we mentioned, kamavor lamala, as it's brought above, shakadei lahotzi hanitzutz mina klipa, in order to extract the spark from the klipa, hamachasala, which is covering over her, e if liyot, it's impossible unless, ki'im, Unless, through breaking the klipa, the kimashala egos, like the example we brought of the nut, that the only way to extract the nut from the shell is to break the shell first. So the idea is as follows. That by breaking the klipa, by breaking the ego of Egypt, it enables a revelation of Hashem's infinite light, la hanitzutz, which is it found inside the spark, 
to the point that it becomes included with Hashem. So when you have light and you have a vessel and the vessel breaks, what happens to the light? Think about practically, like you have a fire and you, ha- you have it in like a glass thing with oil. This has happened to me multiple times and a little kid comes and fire goes, fire goes out, goes back up to its source, just goes out, right? Um, the only way that fire, that light physically can exist is with something grounding it, holding it down. The only way that godliness, godly sparks can exist down here is with something grounding it down. That's called the vessels. When the vessels break, when the keeper breaks, the spark is able to be freed, so to speak, go back up to its source, which is God. And so what that actually practically looks like is that it becomes revealed that this thing is one with God. It goes back to its source and it's revealed the truth of its source. As, we've, as we discussed. This is the idea of what it says in Parshas Bashalach in the story of the splitting of the sea when the... Egyptians went into the sea after the Jews and then the water kind of collapsed on them. It says the horse and its rider were cast into the sea. And we sing this in the Az Yashir every day, um, which we will be learning actually, a mimer on the Az Yashir. Perush, an explanation. Harochev hu haklipa. The rider, the horse and its rider were cast into the sea. The rider is the klipa. Harochev hu who is riding, covering over the spark. Vazel, Indian, Markavot, Paro. This is the idea of the chariots of Paro that were chasing after the Jews. It's the idea of Klippa. Just like the rider sits on the horse and forces it to go where he wants, so to the Klippa hijacks his force of holiness and forces them to become their life force. And again, we can really think about this when it comes to the soul and the body, that the body controls the expression of the soul. It's not up to the soul to express itself anymore once it's inside the body. So it's like a rider that is controlling the horse that it sits on. So the process of throwing the chariots and horsemen into the sea means to break off these hijacking clippers, allowing the sparks to reconnect with their source. And through their breaking, the sparks get revealed and become absorbed into God's infinite light. And as I mentioned before, this is giving us a whole new perspective of the Jews leaving Egypt. God did not just show up in Egypt to take the Jews out of Egypt. He showed up in Egypt to take Egypt out of Egypt, to take the klipa of Egypt out of the place called Egypt, to break it. And that is, as we're going to see, why we had all of these uh, miracles that were not directly connected to actually getting the Jews out. And this answers the question of what it's written. It says about the splitting of the sea. Why did God split the sea? So that the Egyptians should know that I am God. The question that's asked, the famous question that's asked in this verse is, it says that there was not one, oh, it says here, so we have a question. Further on it says, Not even one Egyptian remained. So to say that God split the sea, another miracle, right? So that the Egyptians should know that I am God. But there was not a single Egyptian left to know that God was God. There is a Medrash that says that Paro survived and that he ran away to, I think it was Nineveh. He became the king there. And that the whole story with uh, Jonah and the whale going to Nineveh, he, it was the same Parai. Um, so, something like that. But that's a medrash. The, 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 the basic idea is that every single Egyptian died. So why did God split the sea so that they would know? So the explanation we have here is that Vayadu means to know, but it also means to break. Vayadu Mitzrayim Kiani Hashem. Mitzrayim will be broken 
And then it will be shown and clear that I am Hashem. When the klipa and the ego of Egypt is broken through being shaken up through the miracles, where there's absolutely no other way to explain the fact that God is the source of life to the Egyptians as well, that is when Egypt will know that I am Hashem. So we actually explain Vyadu, they will know as the language of breaking. And through this, through this breaking, it allowed the revelation of these sparks and the infinite light of God to be revealed. And they truly knew, what's who's they? The clippers themselves truly knew, that they actually come from Hashem. Now we're going to see the Esther Makot, the Ten Makot, which start in this week's Pasha, right? Um, or they start in Bo? I think so. They start this week, and then they continue next week, right? Yeah, this is, I think, the first two, three. I'm trying to remember. So this was the same thing as we see with the splitting of the sea. Why did God split the sea? So that the Egyptians should know God. What does that mean? They should know God if they didn't survive. That the klipa of Egypt should be broken through this tremendous revelation and shaking up and showing clearly a revelation that Hashem is the source of life to everything. We see the same thing. This was the purpose of the ten plagues. This was the same idea and purpose of the ten plagues. To break the klipot. And to extract from them the sparks. So this is all pretty clear based on the whole introduction that we've had so far. How, do, how we apply this and see this going on in the land of Egypt itself. Um, and I did actually just come across that Para was from the world of Tohu, right? Because Klippa comes from the world of Tohu. And he represented a very, very good morning. He represented a very, very high, powerful level of Klippa, of concealment. And so Hashem had to come and show him that even though you come from a tremendous godly place, maybe even higher than the source of the Jewish people, which is from Atsilas, I am your source as well. And Para, again, Para truly believed that he was a god. The Egyptians truly believed that Para was a god. And the plagues enabled them to be shaken up and that their entire perspective should be changed. Now, the altar is going to say something very, very interesting. Because we did speak about how this idea of being shaken up applies in our own life, that sometimes we need a shock or we need to hit rock bottom or whatever that looks like in order to make a radical change and to have a total shift in perspective. But the interesting thing that Valtrop is going to bring here is that the plagues were not for the Jews. The purpose of the plagues was not that the Jews should know that Hashem is God or to break the klipa of the Jewish people who were found there and who were themselves steeped in klipa. The purpose of the plagues were to shake up the klipa of Egypt. And the difference here is that Jews don't need the same shaking up in order to return to their source and in order to recognize the truth of where they come from. And this is a very, very, very powerful thing because... I'll put it this way, before I, start, before I got involved in Mayanot, I was very young when I started in Mayanot, so I was even younger before. Um, and I, I guess it also I, I, I was a shluchen mochan alta, which is also a, like a program for, for a Balshava woman. Um, so, but okay, let's say before that, okay, when I was in high school, <laughs> when I was very young, I did have a perspective a bit on people who became religious that was like something has to have, it was like this belief, even someone who became Jewish, Something ha- bad has to have happened in their life in order that they decided that, like, they wanted to become 
religious because the way I saw it when I grew up was that like almost like I was stuck with this and unlucky and the people who like didn't grow up that way and like had an excuse almost not to have all these restrictions and rules were lucky and then I would see people take on these things and I thought okay something must be like running away from something or that was really like the perspective that I had then I started getting involved in Mokonota and in Maya note and you hear again and again and again people saying like why did you just throw your life around like like just put your life upside down. Sometimes it's because, yeah, like something happened or some, you know, I'm not. but mostly the answer that I would hear was like, I care about the truth. I'm looking for the truth. Like I saw something here. I remember my husband has a very good friend who became religious in Mayanot and they're so good friends. Um, he's on Shlichus somewhere now. And I remember my husband saying that he had asked him like, cause he had, he had a really good life. Like he had a really like happy childhood, beautiful intact family. He was doing really well in college. He had like girlfriends and like things were going well. And he got involved with Chabad and he like literally left everything behind, went to Mayanot, black hat. And he asked him like, what the heck? Like, why did you do this? And he, his answer was basically like, just like, I saw that this was the truth. And yeah, literally. You know that, you know that the Maya, a lot of them didn't know that there was a girls program. There was, the, I was there was a bunch of post high boys by me, and it was so funny. They're like, "There's a girls program." They're like, "How old are they? <laughs> <laughs> are they like that?" <laughs> That's what happened. They were like, "Yeah, we saw these girls with Maya me. sweaters," I, I was, and we were like, "How did you get our sweaters?" It was yeah, the f- and I was like, cappuccino, like, and this guy's like, how do you have this? So and I was like, my little one's throwing, and they were like, what? <laughs> like, like, so how old are they? It was very funny. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> how do you have that? Like, how do you the main program knows, but the, the post-high school program definitely is in their own, like, world. But yeah. when I told them that you guys are between ages, like, 19 and, like, 27 or so, they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's too old. <laughs> they're 18. <laughs> like, yeah, they're 18. They're, they're 18. They're 18. Yeah. So they weren't so keen on... Anyway. Um, but... This, no, whatever. So... But the idea here is that we did speak about this. And there is a real truth to the fact that if you do want to change your life around, there needs to be some sort of breaking, some sort of shattering of a previous perspective, some sort of rupture, some sort of rock bottom. But when it comes to what we call teshuva, returning, we call it returning. We don't call it even repentance. Repentance is kind of like a breaking of the past. It's returning. It's something that we've had inside of us always. And it doesn't necessitate a breaking, a tragedy, a trauma for the Jewish people to return to their roots and to know and acknowledge and recognize God. And that is a very, very important distinction. And the Altar Rebbe brings this here. Brings the idea that the Yidden, the Jews are called Ma'aminim B'nai Ma'aminim, believers, the sons of believers. We believe because it's literally inherent within us. Sometimes we need to peel away a few layers in order to actually tap into that belief, but it's there. And we don't need to be broken and our body and our spirit and our perspective doesn't have to be shattered in order to actually believe that and come to that. So it's a very important distinction that these plagues and this shattering, these miracles were not actually for the Jews because the Jews did not need that. Even though the Jews did need a lot of help, they were what we call in the 49th level of Tumah, of impurity. They were not at their best, let's put it that way. Um, they needed some cajoling and some help and some, um, you know, Moshe did put up with a lot, but they didn't need the 10 plagues as they were. The 10 plagues were not there for the Jews, for the Jews to recognize that Hashem was Hashem, that Moshe was the messenger of Hashem. It was there for the Klippa of Egypt. Wait, does that, that goes against what 
Exactly. Okay, so maybe I didn't finish my point. That's what I used to think, but it's not true. It's not true. At the end of the day, everyone needs a shaking up at some point in their life or something. But you can absolutely fully have somebody who, let's say, wasn't Jewish and became Jewish, and their life was a good life before. Somebody who wasn't religious became religious, and and, and nothing terrible, earth-shattering happened. But what? But what? They cared about the truth. What the heck does that mean? Sorry, like, I cared about the truth. It means that you're a believer, and it's something that exists inside of you that came out. Yeah. And it didn't, doesn't necessarily, you don't need to have a, an entire earth-shattering experience in order to change your life around. Sometimes people do have those earth-shattering experiences and they do change their life around. But first of all, we don't have to wait for that. That's a very, very important thing. Because even if, let's say, um, there are those of you who grew up non-religious, now you're more religious, different than your family. This is relevant for everybody. That we, sometimes, I find, I wait for something to really like force me out of my habits and routines. Um, when, it comes to, when it comes to my like, spiritual life, right? I'm a connection with Hashem and my connection with the Rebbe. Sometimes I wait for things to get really bad in order to shake me back out. But we need to remind ourselves that we don't need to wait for that moment. We have it within us already. We don't have to have this crazy miracle story in order to return to our truth because it exists within us. Yeah. And, and so... so it's, I, lit, I had a perspective shift when, when I got, got involved in my email because I had again and again and again people who, again, they had nice lives. I'm like, why? <laughs> um, and it's like, we care about the truth. And you know what the truth is? That I've had girls reach out to me who grew up on Shlichus, who grew up Chabad, who, who come to me and they say, why should I not be... Are you guys familiar with the term Chabad light? Yeah. Yeah, yeah? okay. They come to me and they say, why should I not be that? Like... Be Chabad, like, call my son Menachem Mendel, have a rubber picture, send my kid to the Chabad schools, but practically live my life as, like, you know, just, I guess we could call it, take the easier route. Um, allow myself to do things that aren't up to the standard of not just Chabad, but like a Hasidic Jew, which is beyond the letter of the law in every area, right? Not just on Pesach, <laughs> it's in every area. And they're saying, like, they, they've asked me this before, and it's a real valid question, like, why should I take the harder route? Why should I be like the Chabad Chabad? Why can't I be like Chabad, but like more chill? Why would I have to work so hard? And at the end of the day, what I told them was like, because they were asking me, let's say, and I'm not up there, let's put it that way. But I'm also, so I, I do struggle with it. I don't just say, you know what? It's a challenge, so I'm not gonna, you know? I struggle with it. So I said, you know what? At the end of the day, do you care about the truth? Like, that's what it comes down to. And again, everyone finds their level and where, and where it works. And you have to accept where you are and what you're capable of and then always try to grow. But it does come down to, even within, let's say, a, a, a very religious life and striving for more, maybe saying, well, maybe I shouldn't work so hard. What's the point? At the end of the day, it comes down to, do I care about the truth? And we all do care about the truth. And then that question becomes, am I willing to work hard for the truth? That's a different question. But we do all care about the truth. Because we are believers, the sons of believers. We believe, what do we believe in? We believe in the truth. We believe in God. And, and this is something that is real and alive within us. We don't need to break ourselves in order to extract that from us. Questions or comments on that before we go inside? Just one comment. I remember I think we were in conference class and it was like, why do people become Al And we were giving all these answers. It's like, oh, because we found the truth, because like, we want a better life, like all these things. And he's like, no. 
Because your soul decided it. It's like not. It wasn't like a conscious thought. So like I guess it plays into what you're talking about. Like we, yeah. Even if you can like create these stories of why you came to be, that's really not. Yeah. Really not the true reason because your soul is actually the one directing. It's it's it was alive within you the whole time, yeah. and then it just decided to come out. Like yeah. that's enough. I remember Emma asking me. Um, what did you ask me? Ask me about um, the difference of like motivation, let's say, of people who aren't Jewish versus people who are Jewish. Like it's brought in Tanya that a, a, a Jew gives tzedakah um, for like selfless reasons and a non-Jew gives tzedakah for selfish reasons, right? And it's like, what the heck? Like, I know lots of Jews who give tzedakah. Like, what does that mean? And at the end of the day, the answer is it's not the surface level of what you're thinking when you're giving tzedakah. It's the fact that when a Jew gives tzedakah, he's giving it because his soul is pushing him, even if he himself doesn't know it, to give tzedakah. And when a non-Jew is giving tzedakah, he's giving it because his rational mind is pushing him because he doesn't have that godly soul pushing him. It's all these unconscious motivations going on. And we can rationalize them and put these blanket statements out when a Jew gives one. It's not true. If you would actually line up a bunch of Jews and non-Jews and like, survey them on why they give charity we wouldn't have much of a difference so why do we say things like that because there's this underlying force that a jew has that motivates them without them even knowing it without them even knowing it but that's why we don't have to wait for a breaking in order to return in order to come back to this truth aval yisrael atzmam page 18 however the jewish people themselves lo hayut srechim lemof simklau they themselves did not need these wonders. Why? They are believers, the sons of believers, as it's written. Last week's Pasha, that the Jewish people believed, and they listened, because they remembered God. They had been in slavery for over 200 years. They were beat up. They were at their lowest point, but they believed because they remembered they remembered because this remembering was something that existed within themselves. They didn't remember something from 200 years ago. They weren't alive then. What did they remember? They remembered that which existed within them. And this is where we come to, I mentioned that we're going to talk about the upside and the downside of miracles. So the upside of miracles we've spoken about. It's an incredible miracles and even personal miracles and Hashgacha Prati stories are very, very powerful when it comes to shaking us out of our klipas, whatever that is, of those veils that cover up the truth of who we are and what we want and what we believe. But the downside of miracles is that they're extremely temporary, okay? We are very, very talented at explaining away miracles, as I started off with those stories that I brought at the beginning of this mimer. It's very, very easy for us to, to, to have a miracle, to be very inspired, and a few days later even, sometimes even less than a few days later, sometimes a little more, depends how big the miracle was, to start to rationalize it and make it make sense within the natural world as we know it, right? And the reason for that is because a miracle is unbelievable, right? And so something that's unbelievable in the moment, like, wow, it's unbelievable. But then you're like, it's unbelievable. Let's make this believable. Like, we need to make this fit. And so there's a downside to that. And therefore, we cannot live our lives relying on miracles, and there's actually, I mean, there's actually practical halachas that you're not allowed to rely on miracles for your, for, for your life, right? I think I've mentioned the story of the Alter Rebbe when he was on the boat and he did say Kiddush Levana and he made them stop the boat. They didn't want to stop the boat. You can't bless the moon when it's traveling. And so the Alter Rebbe stopped the boat and said, okay, now 
Then they said, then he said, okay, now you need to make the boat run again and you need to stop the boat. And then they asked the question, like, if you could stop the boat, why not stop it? And the answer is you can't rely on miracles. You can't do mitzvahs based on miracles. Miracles are very, very temporary and they are unbelievable. And we don't base our faith on these miracles, A, because they're not sustainable and B, because we don't need it. Because we have this within us. We don't need this breaking, this shattering all the time in order to remind ourselves of the truth. That doesn't mean we don't have to work really hard <laughs> because that truth isn't like sitting on the outside all the time that we could just grab it. We have to work hard, but we don't have to rely on these miracles. Rock. So what was the purpose on the 10 plagues? Only to extract the sparks that were swallowed up literally within the klipa of Egypt. And that is why we needed these 10 plagues. Because it was in order that we should break Egypt, that we can take Egypt out of Egypt. And as we mentioned, majority of the sparks from the breaking of the vessels fell into the land of Egypt. That's why it was the most depraved land. It was known at the time as being the most immoral of all lands. We know that when, when, uh, when Avram brought his wife, right? It's not a normal thing to be like, oh, I'm bringing my wife. I have to like hide her in a box because they're going to grab her and take her away. Like that, it just shows there was a very, very immoral land in every way. And it was, uh, that's a side effect of the fact that there were many, many holy sparks. The holier something starts off in its source, the lower down it falls. So the holiest, most numerous sparks existed in that place, which resulted in the fact that it was the most immoral, most harsh, most cruel nation. But when we extracted that, we're able to break that klipa and show the truth of what that place is all about, which is that it is sustained constantly by God. Wait, how is it exactly that the plagues were shaking up the it sh- the plagues, each and every one of them in its own way, and we're going to talk specifically about how this was showing. This was shown in the plague of the stick and the snake, but when you learn Chassidus, there's Chassidus on each plague, and it shows each one was showing. You believe this. This is what the Klippa says, but the truth is that it all comes from God, and it, it didn't. It wasn't in a rational way. It wasn't like Moshe came up and preached this. It happened in a shattering way, in a miracle way. But each miracle was a breaking of the perception that Egypt had. I mean, the Nile. What was the first plague? Blood. Blood, but what turned into blood? The Nile. The Nile was what made Egypt one of the most prosperous, probably the most prosperous land at the time. And they served and worshipped the Nile. And Paro claimed to have created the Nile. What did Hashem do? He turned the Nile into blood. He said, where does the Nile come from? Where do you get all of your sustenance from, all your life from, your water from? From me. And I can turn it into blood, into something absolutely useless if I want to. Um, and every plague did that in its own way. It was breaking the klipa. How do, again, how do we break the klipa? By showing the klipa the truth of where it comes from. So we break the klipa of the Nile by saying we could turn it to blood. Like I could do what I want with this Nile because it's mine. And we'll see how, how the, the, the snake and the stick was an introduction to all of the makas by saying at the end of the day, you think that you are so powerful and so real, but you all, it, it's all from God. It all comes from God. Okay, 19. Now we're going to get to the snake. We're going to see how first, the first wonder was this entire message of this mimer that we've said so far. So, so with all of this, we can now understand the original, original question all the way at the beginning that we've probably forgotten, which was, 
Why did God instruct Moshe and Aaron to turn a snake into a stick? A stick into a snake, excuse me. And why was this the first wonder of all? That was the introduction to all the miracles that were to follow. So now we can understand, now we can understand the Hasidus, the deeper truth and perspective of the first wonder. That Hashem showed to Paroi. It's the idea that the stick turned into a stink. And now we can also understand why this was a preface to all of the ten plagues. Because as we explained, we explained already the idea of all ten plagues and the purpose of them. That it's in order to break the klipa, again by revealing the truth of where the klipa comes from. You shatter the illusion and the lie of the klipa. The lie that the klipa says, which is, we are in existence separate from God. We exist and live on our own. As it's written in Yecheskel, that Paro said, Leah Ori, the river is mine, I own it, and I made myself. Which represents the clip of the whole Egypt. Rak, to Karolei Eloka de Eloka, Kanal, as we mentioned above, that the Egyptians called God the God of gods. They said, you're a God, but we're also a God. Like, we're separate from you. That doesn't mean that you're not a God and we, don't, uh, we acknowledge that you exist and that's great. Maybe you're the God of the Jews, but you're not our God. We don't need you. So the idea of these wonders was to show them that these are all just the other side, that these are klipa. And even though they're klipa, even though they're powerful, even though they truly do look like they exist on their own and they don't need God, however, nevertheless, they are constantly receiving their life from holiness at every moment. And that the truth is, they are not something separate that exists on their own, as they incorrectly believed. That they are constantly dependent on God. So that's how we break the klipa again, by just revealing the truth of the klipa. You don't exist on your own and you're to- totally dependent on God. Rak, it is only that all of their life source is, life source is drawn down to them through screens and many, many levels of descent and many strong levels of powerful concealment that hide the truth that Hashem is their source. The Gavarol Kachatzin Tzumim and these concealments, these contractions were, became so powerful by Sterm and these concealments Ad to the point that they can say Ori, the river, is mine. And therefore, when you reveal a tremendous light that comes from above all of these levels of contraction and concealment, these clippers become totally nullified. And this was the idea of these wonders. And here we're going to see how the wonder of the stick turning into a snake was literally this message. The Alzehayamore. And this was the lesson, Hamophis Harishon, of the first miracle, the Indian Hamate, 
when the stick Shenefach Lenachash turned into a snake. Why? Pirosh Mate. What is what does the Mate represent? Mate Hilshon Hamshacha Vahataya. The staff is related to the word Hataya, which means to draw down. It means drawing down or to turn. The Ken Shevet. Shevet is another word for staff or stick. That's also used in the Torah. Gam ken l'shonam shacha. That's also related to the word of drawing down. Kamo kochva de shavit, like a shooting star. Shavit, kochva is a shooting star that it shoots from above to below, it comes down. So a stick, also just in the way that it looks, a stick is a line. And we've spoken about lines before briefly. Um, a stick is just, it has a beginning, has an end, and it's a clear drawdown line. And the word stick, also mata, also shevet, the two most popular words used for stick in the Torah, are both connected to this idea of drawing down. So what would be the significance of the stick in a, on a spiritual level? What would be the message and the lesson of the stick, bringing the stick? What does the stick represent? The godliness as it's drawn from above to below. And that whole entire process that we discussed at length of the fact that godliness starts off as God and as it descends, it goes through many, many powerful contractions and concealments to the point that it can give life to the clippers without the clippers seeing clearly it's their source of life. That's what the Shevet represents, the flow of energy from above to below, like the rivers that we discussed. Dahaino, so this means... Call Hamshachas Seder Ishtashlus, the entire drawing down of the order of descent, the Kedusha of holiness, Miresh Kol Dargin, from the highest level, at Sof Kol Dargin, to the lowest level, Nikramata is called a stick. So this whole process of godliness as it starts off in the highest level, drawn down into the lowest level, that's the idea of drawing down, literally a line, and that's represented by the stick. What would the tannin, which we translated as a snake, but also in some places it's like a considered called like this fiery kind of dragon situation. What would the what would the snake represent? If the stick represents the drawing down the flow of life of God from above to below, what would the stick represent? With the snake, what would the snake represent? What do you think? The unholiness, the ungodliness. Right, the clipper. Yeah. And more specifically, the snake represents the clipper of Pare and of Egypt, uh, because Pari actually in the prophets is called the great snake. Um, but ta- it's interesting because when I do see, um, this could be totally incorrect, but when I do see depictions of like Egyptian pharaohs, their stick always has like a snake at the end. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know if that's like, Like, like different animals. I don't know how like historically accurate that is, but I have, I don't know. I have seen like, Right, I'm thinking of like the prince of Egypt. Uh, I'm not, but every time I see Egyptian kings, they have this like snake. Yeah, the cobra thing. Cobra thing. Very interesting because the bad ones, the mean ones. So, so the the source of this idea is that in the prophets, Pare is called the great snake who who like slithered in the Nile. So the Tananim Ikara Klippas de Mitzrayim, the snake represents the source of all Klippa in the land of Egypt. As it's written in Yecheskel, Hatanim, Hagadol, Harovitz, Betoch Yaarov. Paro is like the great serpent that dwells in the Nile. So Paro represented the Klippa of Egypt on a very general level, all of the Klippa that existed there. The fact that Paro claimed that he was a god and that the river was his. And so when we're talking about these two things, we're talking about a stick. The stick represents the flow of godly energy from the highest level as it sends all the way to the lowest level. 
and the snake represents the klipa of Egypt. So what happened? We'll continue um, with what happened tomorrow because <laughs> it's already the end. But we're going to see the significance now that we know what the stake represents and the stick represents of the stick turning into the snake and then turning back into, back into a stick. And also, Kendall, you had a question a few classes ago about what was the whole idea of the Egyptian... Um, Magician. Magicians coming and doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I did look into it, mm-hmm. and it's going to tie into that as well. Very cool. Okay. So, so we're going to actually be able to get to that as well. What was the whole like showdown that was going on, right? Mm-hmm. That power was like, oh, you could do that. My my magicians can do that too. And they actually could. And they actually could. <laughs> but then what happened at the end? Um, at the end, Aaron's stick swallowed all of the Egyptian sticks, right? So we'll see exactly what that looks like now that we know what each thing represents. And we will finish in Hashem the Mimer tomorrow. Okay. Any questions or comments on what we said today? Clear? Okay. Does, is everything Klippa? <laughs> is everything Klippa? So there are levels of Klippa. <laughs> yeah. There are levels yeah. of Klippa. And not everything is Klippa. So uh, say for Torah, a Torah is not Klippa. A Siddur, things that are like well, openly, actively holy. Um, that are like clearly designated for mitzvahs or for Torah are holy, right? And there's certain things that like we don't take them into a bathroom, for example, at certain spaces because they have a status of holiness. So th- that's those things. Anything that doesn't fall into that category is klipa, yes. <laughs> but within that, there's levels of klipa. There's what we call neutral klipa, and then there's unneutral klipa. Neutral klipa where we can deal with and elevate it to holiness or downgrade it to unholiness. And then unholy clipper we have to stay away from. And that's how we break it, by not giving it our life force and energy. Mm. So there's levels. Okay. Yeah. But yes, it's brought in Tanya. Everything that's found under the sun is clipper, basically. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's why we open our eyes in the morning, we look around and we don't see God because of clipper. I'm saying the truth mm-hmm. is that we, if there wasn't clipper, we'd open our eyes and be like, oh, good morning, God. Thanks for, you know. But we don't because <laughs> we live in a world of clipper. Okay. Chaim.